Amen. A pastor once very wisely noted that when God raises up people to serve his church, he looks for those whose hearts are right with him. His concern is not about talents or abilities, but spiritual virtue. Amen? Good quote. Brothers and sisters, this is the truth that we find all over the pages of God's word. When choosing someone to serve his people, God has always looked for men and women whose hearts are completely sold out to him. Uh, One example is King David, correct? Think about King David, godly King David. You remember how the Lord corrected the prophet Samuel as he saw David's tall, handsome, older brother, and he assumed that he was God's choice for a king? Do you remember what happened? It's found in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. I love this. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. A little earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, we're told about how King Saul was chosen. The people thought Saul was kingly because he was, according to 1 Samuel 9, verse 2, it says this, a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders up, excuse me, from his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. So here we have this tall, handsome guy. He looked the part, right? However, Saul's heart was not right before the Lord because, as you all know, the rest of the story, he was an awful king. By the way, young men and young women, make sure the outer appearance alone is not how you choose your future spouse. Just ask the older folks who are married, right? Because if you do, I guarantee that you will live to regret it just as Israel did. Good looks can hide a rotten heart. Listen carefully. But a godly heart will shine through even a plain face. Amen? Now, many years later, the Lord was merciful to Israel and gave them a replacement king for King Saul. Good thing elections come around every four years, right? (laughs) Sometimes we have to endure eight. But according to 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, God sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And then again in Acts 13, 22, Paul testified that God raised up David to be their king and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Beloved, God is not looking for great and talented people to serve him or tall and beautiful people to lead his sheep. And why not? Because he's never needed people's talents. He's never needed their natural abilities. God wants a people whose hearts belong solely to him. People who have made God the center and the absolute pinnacle of their lives. And he wants men and women, boys and girls, whose hearts are completely his, not ones that are entangled and enamored and ensnared with the things of this world. And so it's no wonder as we come to God's list of qualifications for deacons that every single one of these qualifications is an issue of character. Think about it. The man's talents his abilities, his social graces, his position in society are never even mentioned. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, when we began looking at 1 Timothy 3, 8-13, God's moral standards for deacons is in no way inferior to that of elders. The differences we've seen between the qualifications of elders and deacons are largely that of focus. 
Elders have been called to lead, feed, and protect God's flock spiritually, while deacons have been called to serve God's flock. But the list of character qualities required are almost identical. So let's turn to our passage this morning, standing as we read God's word together. It's found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. All the T's belong together in your Bible. First Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Verse 10, these men must also first be tested Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. Verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. Now, the last time that we were in 1 Timothy 3 together, just a couple of weeks ago, um, really, we saw that this is the only text that speaks of a deacon's qualifications in any text in the New Testament or the Old Testament. We're told absolutely nothing about what deacons specifically are to do. Have you noticed that? So then the question comes up, well, if the text, the only text that talks about deacons doesn't say anything about what they're to do, then how do we even know? And that's a great question. And the answer is found in the very word itself, deacon, which simply means one who serves. It's a Greek word, diakonos. Deacons are a group of organized servants within the body of Christ And the elders will will often need to delegate certain tasks or ministries in order to focus their God-given priorities on prayer and the Word of God that we saw in Acts Acts chapter 6. Well, deacons stand ready to be handed those tasks. Now, we also saw that there is both a common and a specific use for the word deacon in the New Testament. All believers, in one sense, are deacons because each one of us has been called by God to serve one another. All right? Listen once again to the verse that I mentioned mentioned a couple weeks ago. It's 1 Peter 4.10. It says this, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving or deaconing, if I could say it that way, one another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. How many are supposed to do this? What are the first three words? As each one. If you're born again, you're one of those ones. All right? Beloved, we are all, without exception, called to be the servants of God. We really are. However, as our text teaches us here in 1 Timothy 3, there are some in his church who have been called to be model servants, okay, deacons, for the rest of us then to follow in their good and godly footsteps or from their good example. Now, let's read verses 8 and 9 once again. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or or fond of sordid gain. Now, we looked at those first four qualities last time, so I'm not going to repeat myself. And so if you missed it, please go to our website or our YouTube channel, right? We're also on sermon audio. So go to that and pick up that sermon because there's a lot of information that was there in addition to those first four qualifications that are absolutely essential, okay? They really are, so I'd encourage you to do that. Now, the fifth qualification that we're given is listed as a positive one. It's found in verse 9. 
Look what he says here. 1 Timothy 3, verse 9. Beholding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, to be honest with you, this wording seems a little bit strange to our ears. All right? And I admit that. Especially when Paul used the term, the mystery of the faith. So what mystery is he talking about? What's he referring to here? And when Paul uses the term mystery in his letters, he, he's referring to something that was once hidden, but now is revealed, okay? And here it simply is a reference to the great truths of Christianity or the Christian faith. And many of the doctrines of the Christian faith were kept veiled through uh, the Old Testament times, but now have been revealed in the New Testament times that we all now live in, right? It's called progressive revelation. God reveals to us more and more, and by God's grace, when we see him, right, when our faith becomes sight and we see him with our eyes, the rest of those mysteries are going to be revealed to us. But right now, we just need to go back to Deuteronomy 29.29, right? The, the secret passage for theologians, right? The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to our sons, to us and to our sons forever. All right? Now, as an example of this is the truth that we can be reconciled to God through the sacrifice of God's Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In the Old, Test the Old Testament sacrifices, all the sacrifices foreshadowed it, and the Old Testament scriptures foretold it, but only after Christ's death and resurrection was this truth made clear for all to see. In short, the mystery of the faith then is Matthew through Revelation. It's New Testament revelation. That's what he's talking about here. Now, if you were to go back and look at the verses addressing the office of elders, you would see that the biggest distinction between the qualification of an elder and that of a deacon is the fact that a deacon was not required to have the ability to teach God's word. However, even though he is not required to possess the gift of teaching, even though many deacons do have that gift, he must still be rock solid, and this is the point here, in his faith and what he believes, what he knows about New Testament doctrine. This man must know what he believes, and he must know why he believes it. He is a man who is defined by his doctrine. Furthermore, his life must consistently correspond to the Christian doctrine that he claims to embrace. And we see this as Paul goes on to say that a deacon must possess his faith with a clear conscience. Now, the conscience is a human faculty designed to warn us when we have violated God's moral law. One author said that the conscience is like a divine smoke alarm, right? And I like that. If it's functioned properly, it will sound the alarm, listen carefully, before during and after a person sins and until that sin is repented of. Do you follow me? Is that how your conscience works, men and women, boys and girls? Because that's also a great mark of being born again. However, the Bible also teaches us that our consciences can be distorted by sin. The Bible talks about a conscience which can be weak through immaturity, according to 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7. It can be wounded through wrongdoing, right? 1 Corinthians 8, 12. It can be defiled by sin, according to Titus 1, verse 15. And it can be seared by repeated sin and rebellion, according to 1 Timothy 4, verse 2. And folks, let me just say this. The most frightening is the seared conscience, for it then fails to work properly as it should. In our old house in Berlin, we had a smoke detector right outside the kitchen. Great place for smoke detectors, right? But this smoke detector was not like any normal smoke detector you guys are used to. I don't know what those Germans did, but they like turned up the volume on this bad boy. So as that smoke detector would go off at the slightest provocation, Lois and I were like always trying to hold our ears and then go up real quick because it was so piercing right? 
and just try to yank the battery out to stop that ear-splitting siren. Now, that's okay when it's only the bacon burning, right, (laughs) in the kitchen. And we do essentially the same thing when we ignore our consciences and the accusations of sin. But that's not okay when we ignore the issues of sin in our lives. It's not okay. And when we have ignored it time after time after time, we end up searing it. And then it no longer functions the way that God intended it to function. Now, in contrast, having a clear conscience is a common theme all throughout Paul's letters. Have you noticed that? By reading through Paul's letters, he's always talking about the conscience, right? And here Paul speaks of a clean conscience, okay, in 1 Timothy 3.9. Earlier in chapter 1, he spoke about a good conscience, 1.5 and 1.19. In the book of Acts, he spoke about living his life with a perfectly good conscience, according to Acts 23, verse 1. And then in chapter 24, he spoke about having a blameless conscience, verse 16. Now, having such a conscience is a gift from God, correct? It's true. It is a gift from God. But it also takes a lot of hard work on our part to keep it that way, to keep it clean and clear and honoring to the Lord and everything that would befoul it. Jonathan Edwards compared the conscience to a sundial and God's word to the sun. And he noted that the sundial only works correctly when the the light of the sun would govern it, right? And likewise, our conscience will only work appropriately when it's governed by the word of God. And when it's trained correctly, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, by the word of God. Not how you necessarily grew up or what you've been taught, right? But what does God's word say? Now, a clean conscience only occurs when a believer's life is consistent with the truth that he or she professes to believe. And therefore, a deacon's life must be a living example of his faith. And that ties beautifully into the next qualification that Paul lists. Look at verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10, 1 Timothy, still there. These men must also first be tested and let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. This is the sixth qualification that Paul lists for these men who would, who would be deacons in the church and they must first be submitted to being tested. Okay, You don't just make someone a deacon because everyone in the church likes him. <laughs> or maybe he's a head taller than everyone else and he's more handsome. You're thinking, man, if we can only have deacons like that. Just kidding, deacons. <laughs> Paul makes this point quite clear when he says that these men are to serve, listen, only after they've first been tested and have been proven to be above reproach. Paul gives no instructions on how to test the deacons. Have you noticed this? Right, there's, there's, a, there's no uh, appendix or anything else. There's no footnotes, unfortunately. A lot of times I wish there were divine footnotes. Right? So we're not told anywhere on how to test deacons. But the verb that he used is in the present tense, which means that we're not talking about a one-time test that a man has to pass in order to get his deacon's license, right? Rather, we're talking about an ongoing observation by the elders and by the congregation watching their personal lives and their ministry within that congregation, And it's a chance for all to see if they're faithful men and faithful with the appointed tasks that they've been handed. One commentator noted, a person who faithfully discharges an assignment, even if it is a small matter, will soon come to be respected and esteemed for reliability and devotion. Amen. Jesus said he was faithful and the small things will be faithful or the little things will be faithful with much. Do you remember 
Luke 16, Luke 16, 10, I'll just say, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who, is, he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. So don't disregard the little things, folks. Ah, this is a meeting. I told him I'd do this, and I, nah, I didn't have time. You know, that series on television was more important, or that blog that I had to write was more important, whatever it might be. So would-be deacons are to be tested. What's the test looking for? We'll look at the end of verse 10. Paul tells us. He says, then let them serve as deacons, here's the big word, if they're beyond reproach. If they are beyond reproach. So what does it mean to be beyond reproach? And literally, it means not to be laid hold of. That's what the literal translation means, not to be laid hold of. It means, in other words, that no charge of serious sin can be brought against him. It means having an unquestionable and irreproachable character. It means that no one could legitimately point a finger at him for sins that he has not repented of or turned away from. But, having said all of that, beyond reproach cannot be referring to sinless perfection. Because then no human could ever qualify for the office of deacon, and that's the same qualification for an elder as well, nobody could, would qualify if that were truly the case. It does, however, mean that his life is not, here's the key word, characterized by sin or any glaring defect or immaturity in his character. That's the key, all right? He is a man who habitually strives and walks by the rule of God's word. And when he does sin, guess what? And we all sin. He's still a good example in his bad example. Well, how is he a good example in his bad example? By humbly confessing and repenting to all those who were involved in that sin. Whoever heard it, whoever saw it, whoever was involved, doesn't matter. And folks, if you have kids... <laughs> guess what? If you're not used to eating humble pie, just wait until you have teenagers, <laughs> young adults, right? And then you have to ask for forgiveness on a regular basis. And if you're not, then something's wrong, right? Simply say, this man must be a worthy example for the rest of God's flock to follow. And deacons are also not to be new converts, now, the text doesn't explicitly say this, but it's implied in the fact that they, that they are to be mature believers and in the fact that they are to be tested, all right? Now, there's one last point that I want to make here. We should never, never, never use the office uh, of deacon as a place for tryouts. What do I mean by that? Well, if there's a Christian man in your congregation who is not very involved in the church, doesn't attend faithfully, doesn't give faithfully, doesn't serve faithfully, well, you don't make him a deacon in the hopes of encouraging him to be more active part of God's church. Does that make sense? That's the exact opposite of what the Lord Jesus Christ wants for his church. Any man who desires to serve as a deacon must first prove himself faithful in the little things before he is given an official position in the church and entrusted with a stewardship of even greater responsibility. Now before we go on to verse 11, I want to finish with the qualifications for the men. So please skip down to verse 12. We'll come back to verse 11. Verse 12 says, Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. The deacon is a devoted husband. The Greek text literally says a one-woman man. He must be marked by purity, marital fidelity, 
And Paul's not referring to a man's marital status as much as he's referring to his moral behavior. All right? This is a man who, if married, is solely devoted to the woman who is his wife. He is totally faithful, guys. Right? And whether married or not, he does not flirt. There are no other women in his life, whether real or virtual. You know what I'm talking about. One author said the following, A one-woman man is a man devoted in his heart and mind to the woman who is his wife. He loves, desires, and thinks only of her. He maintains purity in both his thought life and his conduct. Amen. Another commentator I read said, No other woman can have his affections maritally, mentally, or emotionally. His wife ought to occupy his full horizon. He must love her as he loves himself. Amen. Well said. The official servant of God's church is to be truly faithful to his marriage vows, both in thought and in deed. Men, do you get what I'm talking about here? I said last time, listen, I know that some people write off this section and say, oh, I'm not going to be a deacon. I'm not going to be an elder. I don't need to listen to this stuff. Let me just remind you what this is. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13, really first the qualifications of an elder and 1, and 1 through 7 and then 8 through 13 as deacons is simply a mark of maturity that every Christian man, woman, boy and girl is to be striving after. And only after they've reached that mark of Christian maturity, in other words, Christ-likeness, do they have the right to turn around and say, follow me as I follow Christ? Does that make sense? So this is not just qualifications for certain men who will be a deacon and those who won't can do whatever they want. No. This is simply a mark of Christ-likeness. And it should be all of our goal to be like our Savior. Amen? Again, the official servant of God's church is to be truly faithful to his marriage vows, both in thought and in deed. So men, how are you doing in this area? Are you a one-woman man, both in your thoughts and in your deeds? What about your eyes, men? Are you looking at things that you shouldn't? And God requires a very high, high standard of moral purity from all those who would serve his bride. Now, the ninth and final qualification is that a deacon must be a good manager of his household and his children. This is verse 12. Still in verse 12. A deacon's responsibility in his home doesn't end with his wife, but it also extends to his children as well. How a deacon manages his own family will be a key indicator of how well he will serve the family of God his home, in other words, must be the proving grounds for his ability to serve the church of Jesus Christ. It needs to start there. Alexander Strauch, who is the uh, author of our book, he said this, the marriage and family life of a servant deacon is one of utmost importance. The state of affairs in the family will spell either death or life for the local church. And I could not agree more with that. The word that Paul uses for manages has the idea of leading, okay, ruling, directing, really having authority over. And Paul says that his leadership is good using a Greek word that actually means noble or excellent. So he's a noble or excellent manager of his own home. So Paul's not simply talking about just being a, a, a manager, right? There's lots of managers out there. We're all managers to one degree or another, managers of your business, of your home, of your children, of your schooling, right? Whatever, whatever area that you're involved in. Paul is saying that this is a man who, desire, who desires to be a deacon. Here it is. Must be a man who leads his home with excellence. 
And parents, one sure evidence of a well-managed family is that your children are under control. They understand and gladly accept their position within the family and they obey without being nagged or bribed or threatened. Their parents have their hearts and thus their trusting obedience. How many of you guys have read Shepherding a Child's Heart? Yeah, by Ted Tripp, right? I would just encourage you guys, if you've never read that or haven't read it in a long time, read it. It's a classic. And that's where all good parenting starts, by always focusing on the heart, right? Now, back in chapter 5 of or back in verse 5 of chapter 3, Paul posed an interesting question when he spoke about the elders. He asked this, talking about the elders, he said, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how is he going to manage the church of God? That's a great rhetorical question. And the implied answer is that he would not be able to do that, right? And the same is true of a deacon, You see, the deacon's faithfulness as a servant must be evident in his diligent care that he takes for his wife and his children and his whole entire household. The man's home life and his outside ministry will always follow similar lines of trajectory. All right? And if he's not found faithful in the care of his own home, then he simply is not qualified to hold this office in the family of God. It doesn't mean that he's never qualified or can never qualify again. Most people that will take our test or our, our, our deacon class will not come through and be a deacon this first time around. They'll probably have to take it two or three or four times or maybe more times, right? And that's, that's okay. And hopefully they'll have things that, very tangible things that they can work on Right? Areas that they can really work on and say, okay, I, I guess this is how other people see me, and it's like, probably need to take that, right? And it takes humility to really grow. Do you guys agree with that? The greatest thing to stop you from growing more like Christ is simply pride. It's your pride, right? My pride. And we've all got pride. That will cause you to stop growing. Okay, are you guys ready for the most controversial verse in this entire section? All right, I like that. Well, let's go back up to verse 11, and let's read it one more time together. Verse 11 says, Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. So the question that has been debated for centuries is this. Is Paul talking about deacons' wives, or is Paul talking, is he referring to deaconesses? What is it? Is it deacons' wives or deaconesses? Now, let's back up a little bit. The first Greek word found in verse 11 is the plural form of the noun gune, okay, which simply means woman. It's a plural form of this noun. Now, the tricky part is that it can legitimately be translated as either woman or wife, and only the context determines which one it should be. All right, we've got a lot of words like that in English, and especially as somebody who's learned it, really taken a lot of time, blood, sweat, and tears learning German and thinking how tricky things were in, in the German language, they would come back and say, listen, the English has so many nuances to one word. It can mean this, that, or the other, right? And I'm like, uh, I guess you're right. <laughs> it is kind of tricky. And, you know, if, you're, if you grow up that way, it's just natural. About half of the English Bibles out there translate this word as woman, and the other half translate it, translates it as wives. And I looked it up this time, right? I looked at all of them. I was looking through probably like 30 35 translations of, of English. You know what I'm saying? Way too many for... <laughs> that's another topic. But we have two possibilities here. 
Either Paul's talking about the wives of these men who are deacons, or he's talking about a separate new category of women who serve as deaconesses themselves. And I know I'm going to step on some of your toes. I know you're not all going to be happy with what I have to say, but I want you to be humble and teachable and listen to what I have to say. Now, the fact that this verse, verse 11, is sandwiched among the qualifications of men deacons would seem to argue for the view that that we are talking about the deacon's wives here. I agree with that. And those who hold this view see verse 11 as just a further qualification for these men or of these men, and then they have to have wives that match this description. And also the fact that these women are not called deaconesses would also seem to argue that we're talking about the wives of deacons. And those are good arguments. And I will say this, many fine expositors and good churches hold to these. As a matter of fact, I used to hold, there I tip my hat, to this position myself until I was challenged by my former ministry partner in Germany, Dieter Borchmann, to really study this out. He goes, Kara, I've listened to you. I've heard your, because we're, you know, deciding what this really meant in Germany. He goes, I want you to study this out. He goes, I have, and I want you to do it. So I did. So after studying this for many, many hours, I'm now convinced that Paul's talking about female deaconesses, not just the wives of deacons, okay? And listen, if you're going to be a manager of your own home, uh, a good manager, right? That means that your wife is also going to be uh, a, a woman following God as well, all right? So I'm not completely discounting everything else. Now let me quickly give you just the main reasons why I believe Paul's referring to deaconesses here and not to the wives of deacons. First, Paul uses the Greek word for likewise to introduce a new category of persons. Now, Paul does this several times in this book. And again, if you, know the Greek, if you know Greek, then you know that this is absolutely key. It's found in chapter 2, verse 9, after speaking about how he wanted men to conduct themselves in the church, and he moved on to a new category and introduced the women with the same word. Chapter 2, verse 9, 1 Timothy. And after speaking about the elders in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and verse 8, he introduces the new category of men deacons with the same word. Okay? Paul also used the same Greek construction to introduce new groups of people in Titus 2, 3 and 2, 6. Therefore, when Paul uses this word here in verse 11, I believe that he once again is introducing a new category of persons, a third group of people in chapter 3, namely women who serve as deaconesses in the church. Now, I'm going to go from the, the easy arguments to the more weightier ones, okay? The second reason why I believe this is referring to women who are deaconesses and not just to the wives of deacons is because there is no pronoun or other grammatical connection linking these women with the deacons that Paul had just finished describing. In other words, the text does not describe these women as the deacons' wives. It just says women. And that could easily, Paul could easily have done that in the Greek text. The Greek text is very exact. He could have done that if he wanted to, but he didn't. The third reason is that there's a clear parallelism between the qualifications mentioned here for deaconesses and those for the elders mentioned in verses 1 through 7 and deacons 8 through 10, and then again in 12 and 13. Fourth, if this really were a reference to deacons' wives, then one has to wonder why no qualification is ever mentioned for the elders' wives whether here in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, or in Titus chapter 1, or any other New Testament passage that mentions elders. And certainly the elders' wives would, would be just as much of a help to their husbands as the wives of deacons were to theirs, I would think. Now, even though, even though my wife does not get up here and teach from the pulpit, 
She is an invaluable key part of my ministry and an invaluable helpmeet for me behind the scenes. She really is. Dieter and I often talk to each other and said to each other that there is no possible way that we could do what we did in Berlin without the wives that God has placed by our side. No possible way. And I know that both my fellow elders, Chris and David, and all of our married deacons would say the exact same thing about their wives. So you have to ask yourself, why would the apostle require that the wives of deacons meet certain qualifications and you not mention a single requirement for an elder's wife? Fifth, in Romans 16.1, Phoebe is referred to a deaconess in the, in the church of Sencrea. Now, this is the same Greek word for deacon or deaconess, diakonos. Now, whether this term, and this is how it's debated in Romans 16.1, okay, it says Phoebe, a, a servant of the church, a deacon, all right, deaconess of the church, whether this has been u- being used here in a general sense as a Christian with the heart of a servant, could be, or in a particular sense as being an official servant or deaconess, the text simply doesn't make it clear. However, the church history does indicate, listen carefully here, that there were deaconesses in the early church, as early as the second century, folks. There is mention in a letter outside of the New Testament that refers to two women who served very clearly as deaconesses. That's pretty close. And lastly, it's probably the most important point here, all right? Remember that we're talking about a group of organized what? Servants. I think a lot of times the reason why people fight, and especially from certain denominational backgrounds, why people fight so hard against the role of a deaconess within the church is because they have an unbiblical understanding of the office itself. Okay, according to the New Testament, the only thing that a woman may not do in the local church is to do what? Is to teach or have authority over a man. Those are the only two things that a woman may not do. All right? Usually people say, well, what can, it, what can a woman do? And I usually I'll answer it that way. She can do anything in church except these two things. What Paul makes it very clear, okay, in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Everything else in God's word is open for her to do, to do and be involved in. Therefore, and here's my point, if we keep in mind that deacons are simply a group of qualified, organized, recognized servants in the local church, then there should be no problem whatsoever with faithful, mature Christian women serving in this way. We would never deny them that. They should be serving anyway. As a matter of fact, I really believe that there are some ministries that are better left to women, right? Think about it. If a woman is sick or just had a baby, then you want other good, godly, faithful women taking care of her, right? Say amen, please. (laughs) There are some jobs in the church that are simply better left, better suited to a woman than a man. And so I believe those ministries should be entrusted to faithful, qualified, and tested women as well. So what are the qualifications of a woman who serves in the local church? And we're going to go through this very quickly. Very quickly. <laughs> they are very similar to those required of deacons. First, a deaconess, like a deacon, needs to be dignified. And we've covered this already. Right? These are women who need to have a quality of character that is worthy of respect. She's dignified. In other words, they take life and ministry seriously. They don't use their appearance, right, to attract attention to themselves, but instead their faithful service draws attention to their God. I like the way that Paul describes this type of godly woman in chapter 2 of Titus, the Titus 2 woman. It says this, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, 
to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Folks, this is the type of woman who would be qualified for the office of deaconess. This respectable, gracious, mature Christian woman who spends her time investing in the younger, less mature ladies in the church and helping them to become like Christ and to grow in their homes and marriages. How many of you older women right now would have given your left arm for that when you're in the throes of being a young married woman, maybe with kids? I know a lot of you would, right? So ladies, you need to be available for those who are younger now. And maybe you're in, in a different position in life right now. Secondly, as we look back at our text, a deaconess is not to be a malicious gossip. Listen carefully. I know I've got, I know what time it is, so we're almost done. She's not to be a malicious gossip. The Greek word for malicious gossip is the word, get this, diabolos. Hmm. It's the same Greek word for devil. It is. Literally, this word means slanderer and is often used in the Bible to describe none other than Satan himself. Our God is a God of truth and a God of justice, but a slanderer is a person who is not concerned about either of those things, truth or justice. He or she, I'll say he or she, is only concerned with, listen, social media people, with striking back, tearing down, finding fault, or venting anger. A slanderer spreads lies, false rumors, or malicious gossip. And normally this comes in the form of a half-truth because a half-truth is a lot easier to swallow than a full lie. Correct? Goes down smoother. (laughs) But please understand that a half-truth told in order to mislead or deceive is nothing more than a full lie. No such thing as a white lie, folks, or half-truth. They're full lies. Slanders and malicious gossips are often controlled by, get this, anger, bitterness, wounded feelings, and even jealousy. Ever feel one of those? Then watch yourself. Watch your tongue. And because of that, they oftentimes believe the lies and accusations they spread. To be sure, slanders and gossips will deny that they are spreading slander or gossip right? They will also try to justify their devilish, diabolos behavior by claiming to have the gift of discernment, a word from the Lord, be on a mission from God. God sent me to do this, or even to be warning the flock. Careful, folks. But clearly, a believer cannot command respect if he or she has a reputation of spreading slander or making false accusations. And no wonder why the wisest man who ever lived said what he did in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 18. He said, the one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. And any woman who wants to be a deaconess may not do this. Any woman who wants to be like Christ may not do this. In fact, I find it very interesting that Paul says this in chapter 2 when he's talking about older women in general, and then he repeats in chapter 3 when he gets to, he repeats it when he gets to deaconesses here in chapter 3. And a woman who speaks inappropriately about others is simply not qualified to fill this position. If she's involved in others' lives, then she will end up knowing the, the weaknesses of those that she serves, right? And the, the needs, and, and she must have control over her tongue lest she cause great harm and much heartache within the church. Now, gossip can be a tricky thing, correct? Sometimes we wonder if what we're talking about is gossip or not. So before you say anything to anyone about someone else, ask yourself these three basic questions. I want to encourage you to write them down, all right? I want to encourage you to write them down. And this applies to every single one of us, male or female, young or old, in person or online. First, do I really have this brother's or sister's best interest in mind as I share this information? Is that not really the definition of love? 
Do I really have this brother or sister's best interest in mind as I share this information? Number two, is there a good reason for this person to whom I'm talking to know what I'm telling them about someone else? Is there a good reason for this person to whom I'm talking to know what I'm telling them about someone else? And number three, am I a part of the problem or a part of the solution? And if you answer to any of those questions, if your answer is no, you don't have their best interest in mind. You, the person you're talking to doesn't need to know about what's going on. And you're not part of the problem or part of the solution, then you shouldn't be talking about it. Moving now along, the third quali quality for a deaconess is that this woman must be temperate. The same quality is required of elders in 3.2, older men in 2.2, and older women in 2.3. The Greek word that Paul uses for temperate literally means wineless or unmixed with wine. Oh, yeah. Look at that time. Listen, I was on vacation for a couple weeks. You guys gave me a little bit of grace, right? Thank you. But in a broader sense, it, it also encompasses the more general characteristic of mental alertness and keen spiritual awareness. One commentator said that this lady is of sound mind, sane, sensible, self-controlled, and sober-minded. In other words, she's a clear thinker. It's probably the best way I can describe it. She's a clear thinker. Not easily tossed to and fro by her emotions or every wind and wave of doctrine, right? She's not easily confused by reasoning or faulty theology. And the last and final qualification that Paul lists here for female deacons is she must be faithful in all things, verse 11. She is a woman who is known for being trustworthy. And her life, like that of the deacon, is characterized by a clear conscience, which is the fruit of the consistency between her faith and her life. And again, Paul's not talking about perfection he's talking about direction right and the word all here isn't demanding perfection but it's simply emphasizing that she must be a woman who is characterized by faithfulness in every area of her life both in her home and in her church one commentator put it like this he said women servants in the church like their male counterparts must be absolutely trustworthy in all aspects of their lives and ministries and another well-respected commentator said this she must be faithful to her husband to her family, to Christ, and to the church. Amen. Now, one more thing before we look at the last verse, and I'll make it quick. No one, and I mean no one, male or female, should be looking for a title before they serve. You guys agree with that? Whether you have a title or not, we are all called to serve our Lord and our brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you're thinking that you would like a title of a deacon or deaconess, and let me encourage you to really examine your heart and your motive for wanting to serve God's flock. Are you willing to just as eagerly serve faithfully without recognition and wholeheartedly without a title as you would with a title? Folks, open up your bulletins, please. How many of you guys got one of these in here? Guess what? We passed one of these out three weeks ago. Guess how many came in? This is for everybody to fill out, all right? Unless you're serving faithfully here. We got five back. And four of them came from ladies. Thank you, ladies. I love you guys. I really do. And I want all of you to hear, well done, my good and faithful slave enter into your master's rest what does that imply now is not the time to rest right maybe you're new to this church and i'm not talking about you necessarily but if you've been around hanging around here for any length of time and you there's not a place that you can say hey that's where i serve at then you're not doing what god has called you to do and i say this out of love for you right i really do mean that we should be a whole body of born-again men and women who are eagerly serving the Lord. How do we eagerly serve the Lord? By serving each other, right? 
Go read Matthew 25. Jesus said, hey, when you, when did, Lord, when did we uh, visit you in prison? When did, when did we clothe you or feed you? And he said, the, to the least that you did it to one of these, you did it to me. We all need to be involved. Take time. Read through it. Pray through it. There's even spaces on the bottom for you to fill in something. If we don't have it listed. Right? But you get my heart here. I hope. All right, we come to verse 13. Listen, I really want to move on next week, so bear with me, all right? Come to verse 13. Paul concludes this section on deacons by focusing on the rewards that all men and women will receive for those who have faithfully served the Lord. Now, society looks down on servants, and Paul knows that even those who serve in the church will often get unnoticed and unthanked. But God never overlooks that. Our Lord sees those who faithfully serve others in a vastly different light. This real quick, a couple of verses, Matthew 23, 10 through 12. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. In Mark 9, 35, sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. According to our Lord, true greatness belongs to those who are first and foremost servants. That's really where it's at. They're not interested in the praises and rewards that come in this lifetime. They're looking forward to the praises and rewards that they'll receive from their Lord. And that's why the apostle ends the way he does in verse 13. Last verse. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And what Paul pictures here is a deacon, just like an athlete in the Olympic Games who wins the race, and in order to be honored and recognized for his achievement, he's placed on a platform for all the crowd to see. He's, he's elevated up. And it, it's a metaphorical picture of the respect and honor that God will give to his faithful servants. A faithful deacon is not a step below everyone else because he faithfully cleans the toilets on Saturday night. He's a step above, God says. James 4.10 says it beautifully. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Now the second reward for the faithful servants is that they will receive great confidence. Those who serve others will receive more and more what Jesus meant when he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. The more you serve, the more you'll be blessed. I guarantee it. And when you get your hands dirty in the ministry, you will see God at work firsthand, both in your life and in the lives of other people. And when you see God blessing them and using you to bless them, then it strengthens your own faith. You have even more confidence. So folks, as we come to the end of this passage, and as you've been very patient with me, We've seen it's absolutely crucial for every biblical church to have a body of called, organized, gifted, tested men and women who willingly and joyfully come alongside the elders and say, how can I free you up, you elders, to pursue your God-given priorities? And where can I serve our great God and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? They're quick to see the needs within the church, ready to take whatever task is handed to them, and invaluable in the health and well-being of any God-honoring church and mature body. I'll end with a story, a large group, true story. A large group of European pastors came to one of D.L. Moody's Northfield Bible Conferences in Massachusetts in the late 1800s. And following the European, European custom of the time, each guest put his shoes outside his room to be cleaned by the hall servants overnight. But this was America, and there were no hall servants. In walking the dormitory halls that night, Moody saw the shoes, and he determined not to embarrass his European brothers. And he mentioned the need to some ministerial students there, but he was met only with silence and pious platitudes excuses. Moody returned to the dorm, gathered up all the shoes, and alone in his room, the evangelist began to clean and polish them. 
Only the unexpected arrival of a friend in the middle of his work revealed the secret. And when the European passers opened their doors the next morning, the shoes were shined, and they never knew by whom. Moody told no one, but his friend told a few people, and during the rest of the conference, different men volunteered to shine the shoes in secret. Perhaps this episode is a vital insight as to why God used D.L. Moody the way he did. He was a man with a servant's heart, and that was the basis of his true greatness. Brothers and sisters, it is my genuine hope and desire and prayer to see each one of us following in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior who came to serve in this world. And may Cornerstone Bible Church truly be known as a family of faithful servants. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the patience of my brothers and sisters. Lord, I thank you that we could walk through this passage together, and I thank you for the many challenges that we see in it. And Lord, I pray that this body of believers would take serious our call, all of our call, to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. All that you've given us, Lord, I pray that we would use it for your glory and the betterment of our brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing that we're, in effect, in the end, in the end serving you. Lord, give this church all the servants that it's needed, and it needs a lot. And I just pray that you would just work in the hearts and lives of all of us to become more like Jesus. I pray these things in his holy and precious name. All God's people said, amen. Let's stand and worship with his last song.